Good evening. Can everyone hear me in the back? It's working okay? All right, great. Welcome. Thanks, everyone, for being here. My name is Rick Corcoran, and I am here wearing a number of hats this evening. Uh, first, I am a proud Princeton alum, class of 95, member of the Princeton Association of Maryland. All right, there we go. We're, we're not a quiet bunch. Our, uh, our esteemed guest, Frank DeFord, is, is also a Princeton alum. I'll get to more of his bio in a minute. Um, I'm also a member of the board of the Pratt Contemporaries, which is the young supporters of the Pratt Library, and we're happy to, to help sponsor this evening, this evening, uh, tonight. And I'd urge you guys, quick gratuitous plug for the Pratt Contemporaries, please go to our website, just Google Pratt Contemporaries. We're doing a, a really great program supporting summer reading in the city of Baltimore. We can use all the support that we can get, so please check that out. I'm also a strong supporter of the Pratt in general, all kinds of great things going on at the Pratt. Again, go to the website and check it out. Um, Madeline Albright is in town tomorrow night. That's a, a quick plug for something immediate on the calendar. Uh, finally, I'm a sports fan and a fan of sports writing. And so it's real special for me to be here tonight to introduce Frank. A, a real quick story. Um, any of you who have, are familiar with the Pratt Contemporaries work of the last couple of years are, are probably familiar with Grant Wall. Grant is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, a classmate of, of mine and my wife's at Princeton and a supporter of the contemporaries. He's done a couple of events like this. And I bring up Grant because he and his wife, Celine, have been living in Baltimore for four years. They literally moved to New York a week ago. And Grant had really wanted this role tonight. He wanted to introduce Frank. And there was a chance. He was, he was going to call me today around noon if there was a chance he could get on a train and be down here. And I half expected him just to burst through the doors and be here. There's still a chance he may show. but. The reason Grant really wanted to be here, and those of you who follow him on Twitter like I do may have read this already, but Grant says that our guest tonight, Frank DeFord, is the single biggest reason that Grant is a sports writer today, which is which is pretty cool. And I, I hope, uh, I imagine that's something that, that feels good for a guy like Frank, who's I'm sure had that same influence on so many other writers. Um, Frank is clearly in the pantheon of sports writers. And I'll tell you what, let me, let me read you a little bit of his bio to tell you more about that. So Frank is the author of 18 books. He's worked in virtually every medium. And I think most of you probably know he doesn't just do sports writing. That's what he's primarily known for, but he does, he does fiction. He does all kinds of stuff. He's, um, he's, a current, he's still a senior contributing writer at Sports Illustrated, where his byline first appeared in 1962. He's a weekly commentator for NPR's Morning Edition, a regular correspondent on the HBO show Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. He's won the National Magazine Award for Profiles. He's been elected to the Hall of Fame of the National Association of Sports Casters and Sports Writers. He's been voted by his peers as the U.S. Sports Writer of the Year six times. He was also cited by the American Journalism Review as the nation's finest sports writer, and he was twice voted Magazine Writer of the Year by the Washington Journalism Review. He's been presented with a Christopher Award and awards for distinguished service to journalism from the University of Missouri and Northeastern University. He and Red Smith are the only authors with more than one piece in the best American sports writing of the century, edited by David Halberstam. And for his radio and TV work, Frank has won both an Emmy and a George Foster Peabody Award. So clearly in the pantheon. Frank's also a Baltimore guy, Baltimore native, Calvert and, and Gilman alum. As I said, a Princeton alum. Um, Frank threw me for a little bit of a loop tonight. He, he usually wears purple. And so I was going to make some, some Ravens jokes, but he, he didn't wear purple tonight, so he, he threw me off. He has a purple pen he showed me in his pocket with which he, he signed my book. And, and I tell you, the reason I, the, reason I know, the reason I know that he favors purple is because uh, 17 years ago, I had the good fortune of being in class with Frank. The, the one and only time he taught was a seminar at Princeton. I took it as a senior. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. I, I uh, look back on it. It's probably my favorite class that I, that I took at Princeton. Um, I share that with you because 17 years ago, I was a college athlete. So 17 years have passed. Clearly, any of you who have played pickup basketball with me, there's a couple in the audience who have, uh, know that I have lost a step. But Frank DeFord clearly has not lost a step. And as you can read here on the front of this cover, Buzz Bissinger said it best, Frank DeFord is the best there is. And we're delighted to have him here tonight. Thanks so much for being here. 
I hand it over to you. Thank you, Rick. That was the only time I taught. Arnold Rampersan, who had worked with Arthur Ashe on his um, uh, last book, uh, was then at the American Studies Department in Princeton and suggested that I do it, and I, I felt it would be an interesting uh, adventure. I was scared to death, though, because of I figured all these Princeton kids, it's a lot easier getting into Princeton when I got in than it was then. <laughs> And I figured they would be a bunch of smart, snotty kids. And I found out they were really very nice, but they weren't nearly as smart as they thought they were. <laughs> I found that out too. And, uh, but it's nice to be back to Baltimore. I hope they do better than the Orioles coming back to Baltimore the last couple of days. They were doing fine until they got back here. And uh, I've been touring with this book. And. Uh, it's nice to finally get back to the hometown because a lot of it is about um, Baltimore and, and growing up. M most of it uh, ends, say, 20, 25 years ago. You know, it, there's a great deal um, about, about Baltimore, which I hold a very uh, affectionate feelings for always. I think you've been handed um, sheets. This is not a test, don't worry. <laughs> but um, they have various topics on them. And when I'm finished speaking for a while, rather than uh, me uh, telling you anecdotes, you can ask me what you want me to tell based on um, what's, what's on, that, on that sheet. Um, the book began as a, as, a, as a piece in Sports Illustrated when um, the editor wanted me to write about the good old days when I was a kid on the magazine. This is going back into the 1960s. That was the time where my... Uh, great late friend David Halberstam called the golden age of magazines, and I think it, I think it, it truly was. It was also a benighted period. If you've seen Mad Men on television, you know very much what it was like. Magazines were the first cousins of, of advertising. The men drank and smoked all day, and the women, who of course were called girls, could only do their best being sort of American office geisha girls. Um, but it was a different time, and, and for a kid just starting out, it, it was a wonderful time. And after I wrote the piece, Morgan Entrick and the editor of Grove Atlantic asked me to turn it into a, a book, and, and I was very reluctant. First of all, uh, years ago, I'd written uh, a memoir about my daughter, Alexandra, who died of, of cystic fibrosis, and I thought one memoir <laughs> per person was... Was, um, was sufficient. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I have two strikes against me um, as a writer, uh, personal strikes. First of all, I had an incredibly happy childhood. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a terrible thing for a writer to have. Uh, ideally, you want to grow up in abject poverty. Your father beats you and your mother is a prostitute, albeit <laughs> albeit with a heart of, of, of gold. Um, every memoir, everybody who writes a memoir needs that kind of angst and misery to really make it work. Uh, the second strike against me is that I'm, I'm not a minority. I'm not even a woman. Um, women get to write women's stories, and there really aren't any men's stories except those sort of adventure-daring-do types, and I'm not very good at that. I, I'm, Gilbert and Sullivan would not call me a... A, a, a manly modern man at all. I don't even play golf. That's how ridiculously out of touch I am with being a man and being a sports writer. People are just astonished that a sports writer does not play golf. It's as if I said I didn't choose to use indoor plumbing. It throws people <laughs> um, In fact, I, it's so bad I gave up and I wrote my last novel as a woman. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, you I couldn't do that with a memoir. I, could, I couldn't carry it out. So, so I'm, I'm hopelessly trapped uh, in this uh, majority mode. In fact, uh, a Hollywood agent once said to me, DeFord, you are the last of the tall, white, wasp, heterosexual, Episcopalian, Ivy League writers. <laughs> uh, 
there, there was a review in the, in the Times today on my book, pretty nice, took a couple of, I think, snarky digs at me, but I'll, set, I'll settle for it, and he quoted that, and then he said most everybody was like that, which really surprised me, but I, I thought that made me rather unusual. I am a Huguenot, though. Um, that's the minority part of me, but the last time we, was, we were persecuted was 300 years ago, <laughs> and so it's sort of hard to gin up any sympathy for me on, on, on that particular point. So anyway, all these things considered, when, when Morgan Intrigan write, asked me to turn the piece into a, a memoir, I said, no, I can't, I, I can't do it. And, and, but the two things changed my mind. First of all, Morgan suggested that I might want to write a little bit in the book uh, about sports writing, not just about myself, but, but about sports writing. After all, most people think that sports writing is, is somehow different than, than other real writing. Um, <laughs> it, it's interesting. Um, it occurred to me one time, this is sort of vocational proof of the, of, of the point. Sports writer in journalism is the only term I know, vocational term, which is one word. Sports writer is one word. All the other professional titles are two words. Editorial writer, movie critic, war correspondent, even sports editor, all two words. But sports writer is jammed together, I think, because people think that we writers, we are, we are just jock sniffers so close to the people that we cover that we must be stuck together with them <laughs> constantly. And everybody assumes that sports writing most, must be junk. I, I, it always amuses me that when people are nice enough to compliment me, and I do accept it as such, but they say, Frank, that was really a good piece. It was so good it wasn't sports writing. So <laughs> that, that's what you're up against. So I decided, well, maybe I will write it, and I could sprinkle a little bit of that into the memoir, uh, uh, anecdotes about sports writers, things that interested me, not any kind of, of academic. Uh, like, like my favorite sports writer of all was a guy named Bernard Darwin of the Times of London. He was Charles Darwin's uh, grandson, and he was really the first full-time golf writer. He was also completely full of himself, uh, <laughs> Charles Darwin was. He thought he knew golf so much better than everybody else that he would never deign to actually interview the golfers who played. Um, if he felt that he needed another opinion about golf, Darwin was um, an authority on Charles Dickens as well as golf. And though there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Dickens knew anything about golf or even ever saw golf, whenever Darwin would, get, uh, would need a quote he would dredge up a quote from Dickens about some other subject and apply it to golf. Now, that, that is really the, the epitome of sports writing. That's a, that's a far, far better thing to do. Um, the other thing that changed my mind um, was my wife. Um, now, we've been married. Um, um, 47 years, many of them happy, and uh, I, I, mu I must tell you this. Um, my editor at Sports Illustrated, my first editor, was a guy named Andre Laguerre, an absolutely fascinating character. I have a whole chapter in the book about Andre. He was a Frenchman. It's very interesting that it was a Frenchman who made America's Sports Weekly work because it wasn't working until he took over. He had been de Gaulle's press secretary during the war. At Dunkirk, he was fished out of the blazing waters. He later was a war correspondent and was almost killed in a, in a bomb blast in, in Indochina and in, in, in Saigon. He's one of these people who was larger than life. And there were two things that Andre told me that I particularly remember. One, apparently, of which I quoted um, to Rick and Alexa when I was teaching the class. When I was wondering whether I should really stay as a sports writer or get into the real, real world of writing, he said to me, he said, Frankie, 
He's one of the few people who ever used the diminutive with me. He said, Frankie, I said, uh, it never matters what you write as long as you write it well. In other words, the craft is what matters so much more than the subject. And that had a lot to do with me staying in the sports writing realm. The other thing he said to me one night at the bar, he said, Frankie, you have a choice to make if you want to be a good writer. You can either drink with the boys or chase the girls, but you can't do both. <laughs> Actually, the guy who was standing next to me was a wonderful writer named Ron Finwright, who was on his third marriage, and Ron said, now you tell me. <laughs> but I, I, I got diverted here because when I went to Andre and told him that I was going to get married, this is exactly what he did. He took his scotch and he laid it down on the bar and he went, that's the worst news, Frankie, I've heard in months. <laughs> I was making $10,000 at the time, which wasn't a bad amount of money then. But, he said, if you don't get married, I'll give you a $3,000 raise. <laughs> now, how many of you in here have ever had a 30% raise? That's a lot. <laughs> and the guy next to Andre at the bar was Tex Mall, who was the football writer. He had been a trapeze catcher in an earlier life. And Tex had also been married a number of times. And he said, and I'll give you $1,000 out of my own pocket every year. <laughs> and he was serious, too. But I married the girl anyhow. I guess I'm... Uh, of romantic. And, and, and I think one of the reasons that we've managed to stay together all these years is we had sort of a post-nuptial agreement, which is that I would never show her anything I wrote until it was actually in print. It amazes me, the many books I read, in which the authors always say, I want to thank my darling wife or my darling husband in, the, in that case for supporting me in this effort, for, for helping me do research, for, for proofreading, and, and for making wonderful suggestions. And this absolutely astonishes me. I don't know how this works. I look at it in two ways. If I give Carol something to read, and she says she likes it, I immediately assume that she's just saying that, she's patronizing me, and I don't like her. And if she says she doesn't like it, I hate her. <laughs> and so it's a lose-lose situation, and, and I think marriage is tenuous enough as it is. The other post-nuptial agreement we have is that she does not have to hear me speak on occasions like this, um, because through the years she's heard me enough. And indeed, that's what she said when I told her that I didn't think I was going to write the memoir because I didn't have enough material. And she said, I've heard you tell many, many stories. She was nice enough to not, not to say too many times <laughs> or too late at night or anything of that nature. But, but, but she did say that. She said, you have enough material, believe me. And so what the hell, I said, I'd, I'd write the memoir. So it's a little about, about sports writing and, and sports writers. It's a little bit about that boring, happy childhood of mine and, and my family, which is actually a little bit more interesting. And um, most of all, though, it's about the experiences that I have had. You know, people like Madeleine Albright tomorrow, um, people who've done things, when they write a memoir, they write it about themselves. Writers don't do things. They just catalog what other people do, and, and, and that's, that's what overtime is about. Think of it in these terms. The word memoir is really me more, right? <laughs> this is more we more than, than it is a memoir, a me more. And, and, and I do have one thing going for me, which is that I'm, I am very versatile. I don't know whether that's a curse or a blessing, but I've written in just about every genre that there is, Fiction, nonfiction, uh, radio and television, uh, movies, magazines, books. Uh, I've even written for the internet. I've done everything but iambic pentameter, I think. <laughs> and in doing that, I have met an 
had an awful lot of fascinating experiences. As a writer, once I even emceed the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue publicity tour. Um, no, you, you don't know the best part of it. I was on the company airplane, the Time Incorporated corporate jet. I was the only man, except for the pilot, who of course had to fly the plane. And me with, with, with the models. That, that was it. I, I spent Valentine's Day with Elle McPherson, Rachel Hunter, and Carol Alt. We were in Detroit, That's, which is a wonderful place to spend Valentine's Day together. But even better than that, if you were going to talk about women, I was there with Billie Jean King. Uh, this is the 40th anniversary of Title IX, and that was Billie Jean predated Title IX. And, and, and I was covering tennis then, and and just was lucky enough to be riding shotgun with her when she was, in many respects, changing the world or changing a part of the world. She lives in New York now. Not We see each other occasionally. And um, one of the last times we had dinner together, she said to my wife, it was one of the best compliments I ever had. She said, Frank got it. She said, a lot of writers didn't get it. Frank got it. And I really did feel... Um, very, very, very good about that. Uh, another, another real part of history that I was lucky enough to be part of was that I, um, I lived in Johannesburg with Arthur Ashe. I mean, we actually lived together when he broke the color line there at a time when apartheid ruled and nobody could have ever imagined that a man then in jail on Roman Island would be the president of that country in another only 15 or 20 years, and, 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 and so that was a time where I was really doing an important story, not just an important game story. And my gracious talk about history, I was the sports writer on the Light Beer All-Stars. Tastes great, less Philly, remember? I had, and, um, had a lot of Maryland stories. My favorite was the time that I went to interview uh, our late great vice president, uh, Spiro Agnew. Uh, the only time Maryland has ever had a, um, either a vice president or a, a president. I was doing a story on Chick Lang, who ran Pimlico, who really made the Preakness come back. And Chick was a great admirer uh, of Agnew. He'd even been the guy who drove him around in the car when he was running for governor. And I thought how nice it would be if I could get a quote from the Vice President of the United States about, about Chick. And so I called down, or wrote down, I suppose, to the Vice President's office and had to jump through a lot of hoops. But it was finally agreed that I would be allowed to come and interview the Vice President as long as I would keep my remarks to this one subject. I was not supposed to range into politics and that the vice president would give me, say, 15 valuable minutes of his time. And I showed up at the executive office building there, and um, God, did he look like a, a president, Spiral Agnew. Only Warren Harding probably looked better. <laughs> don't, don't ever choose him on the basis of looks. I remember he had a, 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 a shark skin, sort of gray suit on, uh, just wonderful. The hair slicked back, remember it? His desk was completely clean, except for a bunch of little elephants that some Republicans had given. And I asked him about Chick Lang, and he immediately said what a wonderful fellow Chick Lang was, and maybe I asked him for an anecdote or two. I don't think the whole thing took but about five or six minutes. That was it. And I was ready to go. And then, then the vice president started asking me questions. Where did you grow up in Baltimore? Turned out we were very close to each other, that the number 11 bus came right by my house and went out to Rogers Forge, where he had begun his political career there in the PTA. We began to chat about that. And then when that was finished, we talked about Maryland characters, Baltimore people, places. Where do you like to go to dinner? It suddenly occurred to me, he had nothing to do. <laughs> nothing. 
he probably was waiting for the bagman to come over from Towson in the afternoon. But in the meantime, he had nothing to do. And so I sat there looking at the little elephants on his desk and talking to him. And finally, I had to say that I had to get back to New York. I, I had business to attend to. So I've met a lot of, of characters. I've seen it all change. I can remember Howard Cosell, uh, virtually unknown, uh, humping into the locker rooms with about 25 pounds of, of, of gear on his back, the, the first sort of mobile, if that would be the word, uh, radio equipment, which allowed him to come in with the, with the written press. And the access that we had in those days, writers had. I, I astonish young, young sports writers by telling them of the night. I remember very distinctly that after the last game of the NBA playoffs, spending 15 minutes alone with Jerry West in the Lakers locker room, and then going across the hall and spending 15 minutes alone with Bill Russell. You couldn't get a minute alone with, with those kind of guys T today. It's all changed. This was before ESPN was, was even on the horizon. And um, I just saw an awful lot of stuff, and I got to know so many, many uh, fascinating characters. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a George Plimpton type. But um, I wrestled a bear once. <laughs> I, uh, I played against the uh, Harlem Globetrotters in, um, in, in Bologna, Italy. I had been with them for a long time, and the last night I played against them. And this is very helpful to me because every tall guy, uh, whoever anybody meets, um, the first question they get is, did you play basketball? And this allows me to say, yes, I played a little pro ball in Italy. I rode in a race car with Danica Patrick. Scared me to death. I'm not very brave. I, uh, actually, I had a horse named after me, Frank DeFord. Uh, he couldn't run a lick. <laughs> and neither could I. My basketball coach at Princeton said DeFord, you write basketball better than you play it. That was pretty much the end of my career. You know, we think of sports as so domestic and so local. Uh, you know, the Orioles versus the Yankees or Michigan State versus Ohio State or whatever. But the fact of the matter is that uh, I've uh, covered in events and people in 49 states, five continents. All I've missed is North Dakota and Antarctica. Those are my... To have been in 52 countries as a sports sports writer, um, and it's such an eclectic life that, that I've experienced and that that I write about in overtime. I think the person who probably impressed me the most was Sir Edmund Hillary, who was the last conqueror of uh, important real estate on 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 this this earth. But by the same token, I think the people that I liked the best were the men and the women in the roller derby. I adored them. <laughs> The best advice I ever got came from Colonel Harlan Sanders, a Kentucky Fried Chicken. The most irritated I ever got was with Don King, the boxing promoter, who stood me up twice for, for interviews. And I managed as an editor of a newspaper called the, the National Sports Daily to lose $150 million and did it in only 18 months. That is a world's record. So I think I came along at the right time to be uh, a sports writer. And, and, and the wonderful thing about sports is that under that umbrella of athletics, you, you can write about almost anything, about life and love and sex and religion and, and virtually all the, the, the human emotions. It may be sports, but it's basically about people and, and drama. I've often said that if... If you can't write sports, you really ought to get out of the business of, 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 of writing. Huh? Uh, you got to be lucky. I got my job at Sports Illustrated because they thought I was stupid. That, that's too complicated to get into here, but it's the first chapter in the book. So you can get it and read that. And, and, 
And so I became a troubadour of sports, and I think I've been really blessed. And I hope in the book over time, this memoir of mine, um, I told about the best parts and the most interesting things that have happened to me in the last 50 years. Now, you got those sheets that, that were handed out, and they give a sampling of some of the things that I write about. So what do you want me to tell you about? Take a look, and, and, and what interests you the most? Yes, sir. What about your favorite teacher? My favorite teacher? My favorite teacher. Now that surprises me because I don't even remember who that is. Oh, Kings, Kingsley Amos. Yes. Oh, well, oh. That's, that's really fascinating. Kingsley Amos, for those of you who've forgotten him, his, his son actually is Martin Amos, has become much more famous. Kingsley came to Princeton, uh, I guess it was my sophomore year, to be a visiting professor. He was known as the angry young man of, of English letters. And um, he wasn't really. Uh, he spent most of that year having an affair with another professor's wife, and so he was quite happy <laughs> the whole time. And you, um, he had 15 students that he um, would see periodically. We didn't meet together. You know, you would write something and hand it in. It was wonderful. It was, uh, it was one of those courses that was just pass-fail. And it was clear that he wasn't going to fail anybody, which made it even better. <laughs> and, but in sort of a, a getting-to-know-you phase, uh, he asked everybody to write down the three writers who had most influenced them. And I think most of the guys um, probably showed off and wrote down you know, Dostoevsky and Keats and, and, and Faulkner, you, you know, really fancy writers. And I really tried to think of who had influenced me. And I wrote down Shakespeare first, because um, he's influenced everybody. And, and then I wrote down Salinger, J.D. Salinger, because The Catcher in the Rye had been a tremendous influence on me. And I was searching around for the third one to write, and I thought, you know, I was very interested in journalism at the time, and I wrote down Red Smith, not because he was a sports columnist, because I thought he was the most literate um, newspaper writer I'd ever read, and I thought that he kind of proved that you could be a good writer and be a journalist both. I thought that was pretty smart stuff. So I come in to meet Amos uh, for the first time, and he's looking at this piece of paper, and he says... And who might uh, this uh, Red Smith be? And I told him that he was a sports columnist. And you could see it was all he could do not to choke on this. <laughs> all the great writers in the world. Okay, flash forward a little bit. My brother was going to school in England at the time at rugby. And Amos wrote a piece, a really nasty piece. It was printed in one of the British newspapers, and out one of the top ones about his life in America and teaching these idiot students at Princeton. <laughs> and prime in the article was the stupidest one of all <laughs> who had actually written about a sports columnist in the same breath as Shakespeare. <laughs> and my brother sends me this article and said, I think I was described as gangly. He says, I think this is you. <laughs> so, two, three weeks later, I come in, and I said, Mr. Amos, I really enjoyed your article. And he says, what? This is before the internet now, you know. And he said, what article is that? And I said, you know the one in, in the... Midlands Gazette or whatever. Well, I mean, he just blew him away. First of all, that I had such sources that I could get. <laughs> and I said, I like the way you described me, sir. <laughs> well, he was putty in my hands after that. <laughs> and at the end of the year, 
I wrote a play, and he said, uh, and I think sincerely, he said, this is much the best thing that has been handed in to me all year. He introduced me to his agent. The play almost made it off-Broadway. And that got me started. Two, two or three years, well, it was a little bit longer. I contacted that agent and said, remember me? And that was, that gave me a, a, a big jump forward to get a hotshot agent. All thanks to Kingsley Amos calling me a dummy. <laughs> That's why he's my famous favorite teacher. Yes, sir. Bill Bradley. Bill, like Kingsley Amos, was also responsible for moving my career forward. Um, when I was a senior at Princeton, Bradley was a freshman. And in those days, uh, life was much more informal. You didn't have these nerds who would go around like ranking fifth graders, which they do now, you know. <laughs> Uh, some guy from, you know, some little child from Portland, Oregon is ranked number one among the fifth graders in America, and somebody from Waco, Texas is number two, and so forth. It wasn't anything like that at all. And in those days, the freshmen couldn't even play on the varsity. So how many people saw Bill Bradley play freshman basketball against Columbia and Brown and so forth, right? So, I mean, he was amazing. So I got a job, that's when I got the job at Sports Illustrated after I graduated, and I tell them there that um, the best sophomore in the country is at, French, is at Princeton. And of course they laughed at me, you know, the, the old tiger, he just, this kid, what does he know? And I said, no, no, he really isn't. He's an interesting story, too. He's a bank president's son. And finally, they threw me a bone and it was really the first story I did, was Bradley in his first week as a, as, a, as a varsity player. And he goes on to be even better than I thought he was. And that made me look really smart. <laughs> and they thought I, and, and the second part of the story is that by, in another two or three years, I was the pro basketball writer at... Uh, at Sports Illustrated, and that meant that most of the time I would be hanging out with the Celtics because they were always winning. Now, the Celtics won, but the other team in Boston in the winter was the Bruins, who were terrible. There were only six teams in the NHL then, and the Bruins finished last every year. But they had this thing in Canada where they would practically take a hockey player and wean him away from his mother's breast. <laughs> and send him off to play in what was called Junior A hockey. And they would draft you at the age, you know, before your voice changed. And Bobby Orr had been drafted by the Bruins because they were the worst team. And so they'd gotten the first draft choice. And so I kept hearing about this kid. You couldn't play in the big leagues till you were 18. And they would say, two more years, we'll have Bobby Orr. One more year, he was like the Christ child was going to be. <laughs> I didn't know a hockey puck from a badminton bird. But I went back to Sports Illustrated and said, you're not going to believe this, but the Bruins have got the greatest hockey player that's ever come along, and he'll be playing. It was Bill Bradley all over again. And I went up to Parry Sound, Ontario, and the... I was having breakfast that morning, and I asked the waitress if she knew where the oars lived, and she did because she was Mrs. Orr. <laughs> Which was another good omen. So, not only did I discover Bill Bradley, but I discovered Bobby Orr. And, you know, this moved me up in estimation uh, tremendously, and was really the beginning of my... Uh, successful career that I stumbled on these two guys completely, uh, luckily. Just as a final footnote, there's a chapter in the, uh, in the book in which Bradley is not the star of it. He, like he has been in all his life, he's, he's the second lead. And, and it's my favorite chapter in the book. It's mostly about a guy, a guy named Danny Sachs. But, but, but Bradley plays a, an interesting role as a second 
second lead. Uh, I've, I've told Bill often how much <laughs> I appreciated him uh, giving my career such a boost. I, you know, Bradley lost, uh, I think so, but then I'm prejudiced. You know, he only lost the New Hampshire primary by about 400 votes. And I think if he had won, you know, and then beaten Gore, I think he would have beaten Bush, and I think history would be very, very different for the first part of the 21st century. But, but as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm prejudiced. Uh, yes, sir? Well, I, now you got to read that. <laughs> you got you got to read that. That's too that's too too complicated to get to get into. That's a that's my favorite story, and and I, I prefer you read that rather than me tell it. Uh, next choice, yes. Ah, the National Sports Daily. Um, that's the only time I was ever an editor. Uh, I don't like editors. Um, I fought them tooth and nail all my life. There was an old newspaper man, Gene Fowler, who said, every editor should have a pimp for a brother so they would have someone in the family to look up to. <laughs> and, and, uh, I, pretty much, I pretty much subscribe to that point of view. But uh, I was offered an awful lot of money um, to be the editor of this new venture, this first American sports daily in, in, in America. There are sports dailies in most countries. And it was just too much of a money grab for me. I was just you know, too greedy and took it. And actually, it turned out to be a wonderful adventure. The guy backing it was a Mexican named Emilio Escarriga. He was the richest man south of the Rio Grande. And he wanted to do this in America, to, to in effect show us gringos that, that, you know, what could be done. And unfortunately, it, as good a product as I think it was, I'm probably a bad person to judge that. It was a terrible uh, commercial venture. We couldn't distribute the newspaper. That's why the internet is so wonderful. You just push a button and you've got it. But this was, this was 1990. It was really the last great print venture in this country. Talk Magazine with Tina Brown came along seven or eight years later. Maybe that would count. But, but we tried our best, and Emilio finally folded it. And, and he, was, he, he, he settled for every penny. There was none of this five cents on the dollar, everybody got paid. He wasn't gonna let anybody say anything bad about uh, the Mexican. He was a wonderful man, and I didn't know it. It was called El Tigre. He had a, a white swath of hair. He was tough, tough. He'd come to New York and, and we'd, we'd go out and drink all afternoon. He drank martinis, the only person I ever drank martinis with. But when El Tigre said, let's go drink martinis, you drank martinis. He was the guy signing the checks. And uh, he died a few years later. He had cancer. Apparently he had cancer even during it, that he wanted this to be his last. He died like a Viking. He had this magnificent yacht. Had an airplane on it. A yacht with an airplane. <laughs> and it pushed off in his last days from Miami. And he was full of morphine. And he just sailed off into the sunset. Uh, so it was a great adventure, even though it was it was failed in the sense, in in the business sense. But there was great camaraderie and great love, and it was really the the last great newspaper experience in the United States. There'll, there'll never be another. Yes, I can't hear you. So I'm, I'm Chamberlain. Sorry. Wilt, um, it's a very poignant story uh, about Wilt. Uh, it didn't start off that way. I didn't like Wilt. Um, the world was divided into two camps, the Bill Russell camps and Wilt Chamberlain camps. There was sort of no in-between. I mean, it's like the Republicans and the Democrats today. There was no bipartisanship. 
you were for one or the other. And I was a Russell man. And uh, I, I even wrote an article when he was traded once to the Lakers, and I had some good contacts on the Lakers. And I wrote about how uh, Elgin Baylor, who played, was one of the stars, really couldn't stand him, and some of the other players, Butfan Bredikoff, the coach, didn't like him. They called him Big Musty behind his back because they said he smelled. I mean, that, it, was a, it was a tough article. And three months later, during the playoffs, uh, I was in the Lakers locker room, and Jerry West came over to me and said, uh, Frank Wilt would like you to leave. And, you know, I said, okay, Jerry. Uh, you know, Wilt was huge. <laughs> I mean, I've seen big guys, but there was something about his size that made him, he just blocked out the sun to go somewhere with Wilt. Um, I mean, people would stop dead in their tracks. Amazing. So anyway, time went on, and Wilt retired. And a friend of mine, a good mutual friend of mine, a guy named Tommy Kearns, had played against Wilt in the 1957 championship game between North Carolina and Kansas, the game that had really branded Chamberlain a loser, even though he didn't deserve it. And, and Kearns had become his stockbroker. And Kearns kept telling me, he said, you know, Wilt's a good guy. You're wrong. And so I finally agreed to, the three of us went out to dinner one time when Wilt came to New York, and we did get along. It was sort of bygones be bygones, that sort of thing. And when Wilt turned 50, I went out to do an article on him and really got to know him quite well. And, and um, we liked each other and, and, and joked a lot. And Wilt is the only great star that I know, that I've met anyhow, who seemed to be happier after his career was over. Most great athletes, you know, fight to the death to keep playing another year. I mean, this is it. This is their life. They love it. And, and everybody adores them. Wilt, so much was expected of him that he, he could never live up to it. And, and he was much happier when it was, when it was all over. And, and, and he was living a pretty good life, and then, then he wrote a book, and he made that ridiculous boast about sleeping with 20,000 women. And, and it, he thought that was going to make people really look up to him, you know, really think what a, what a, what a hotshot man he was. Instead, everybody thought quite the, quite the opposite, that he was trash for, for, for that. And he finally realized that, and the last time I saw him, was at a big party for Bill Russell in Boston. And Wilt, to his credit, flew all the way across the country to be part of it, even though he knew he would be sort of the designated villain. And when we were at the party afterwards, the, after the, the big ceremonies, he called me over, my man. He called everybody my man. My man, he said, I need your help. And it was because he was suffering such bad publicity. And he wanted me to get HBO to do a documentary on him. He was looking to be, in effect, publicly rehabilitated. And I said, yeah, well, I'm sure we can do that. I'm sure we, they'd love to do it, and they, and they would have. And I said, I'll give you a call. I gave him a call. He wasn't there. He called me back. We missed each other. And three months later, he was dead. And I always missed that opportunity to sort of you know, make up for Will, because he never did, as I say, he, I don't think he ever felt that he could live up to what people expected of him. So, so great, so huge, so talented, so massive, and, and at the end, uh, so, so very, very poignant. Yes? I have a question to offer you. Okay. Uh, Extra credit. Pretend you're an SI writer today, and the topic is sort of NFL and violence, the National Football League and violence. Yeah. How would you, how, how would you approach that article? All right. Did you, I don't know if you heard the question. I'm a, pretend that I'm a young uh, writer today, a, a sports writer, a sports illustrator. How would I deal with the subject of, of violence 
in the National Football League. Well, I sort of did, sort of did that this morning in my, in my commentary on, on National Public Radio. I said the issue is not NFL violence. Um, just because 2,000 guys are suing them, which they are, um, the subject is football and violence. I mean, it doesn't start, violence doesn't start when you turn pro. It is a violent sport. And five million uh, kids, well, not kids, but five million young men and boys under the collegiate level are playing football. Half of them will get concussions. A third of them will get multiple concussions. Those are the statistics. And what I said, and what I believe is, uh, how many people are going, how many parents are going to let their boys play football as it becomes more and more apparent how dangerous the game is? Um, I also mentioned in this commentary, and it's not uncommon now, I talked to a football player last week, one of the guys who's suing the league. And he talked about how he loved football, loved to hit. He talked to also about how he was about 45 years old, but he said he's got the body of a 65-year-old man because he played football. And he said, I'd do it all over again. I loved it. And then he stopped and he said, I won't let my boys play. And so to me, that's the subject right now. How you can distill the violence out of football and still be enchanted by it, how you can do it, or is it just going to become a gladiator sport in which the people, well, like the boxers. Boxers was always a sport where only people from, from the lowest classes would, 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 would fight. It's too brutal. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens to football in, in, the, in the next, next few years as we've suddenly discovered that it's a violent game. Way in the back. Uh, also, Walter Sheep, um, since we have the Preakness upcoming here in Baltimore, any favorite? Uh, the Preakness? Yeah, any favorite uh, Triple Crown stories? <laughs> or the my, uh, in my house, um, we, I, we always, you know, bet on the Derby and the Preakness and everything. I, I've, you know, I've got over on track betting and all that. And my daughter-in-law is eight and a half months pregnant. And she bet big on, I'll have another. Yeah. So we had a big winner in my house. Now, whether I'll have another can win another at the Preakness, I know that she's going to throw that money back into it if she's not in labor at that time. Uh, no, I don't, I don't know... Uh, uh, it's, a good, it's a good crop of three-year-olds, as I understand. I mean, some years they say just nobody's very good, but, but, uh, but this is apparently a, 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 good, a good bunch. But no, I haven't got any tips. Do you have any recollections of, say, Secretariat? I, I, uh, Secretariat, it's interesting. There was a guy named Whitney Tower who was a great uh, horse racing writer at Sports Illustrated. And... Uh, he covered most of the of the big races, and Secretariat's last race was in like late October, November. It was up at Woodbine in in um, in Toronto, and Whitney was on vacation, and so I went up to cover it, and uh, it was on the turf. And I remember um, when the race was over, I came down. And everybody knew this was Secretariat's last race. They'd already said they were going to put him out to stud the next year. And I came down, and where I thought, as best I could judge, he had made his last step at the finish line, I reached down and, and grabbed up the, the grass, which I still have. I have the last grass that Secretary <laughs> stepped on. So uh, uh, that's that's my secretariat story. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, I, I'd like to hear either of what you'd prefer to talk about, either making light beer commercials or playing a matchstick game. Ah, the match, the match game. Yeah, the match game. Any of you know the match game? See, I feel like a, I say in the book, I'm like an Eskimo 
who's the last one to speak, you know, the dialect. You know, they always find the one old guy that the language is going to fade away. The match game was a game played by, mostly by newspaper men. Um, but, you know, it was a bar game. And it didn't take much intelligence to play it. Anybody could play the match game, which made it so attractive. And it's also the only game I know where there was no winner. There was just one loser. And it was usually played after uh, several drinks. And I just happened to have some matches in the hopes that someone would ask me that question. And one person would be in charge. And he would take the matches out. And everybody had matches in those days because everybody smoked in those days. Wooden matches like these. And everybody would be handed three matches. Pretty simple game. You would take those three matches and you would put them in your pocket. And then it would be time for the first round. Let's say five people were playing. And for some reason, everybody was immediately called Mr. It was not Frank, it was Mr. DeFord. It was all, suddenly we were in this sort of aristocratic atmosphere. Um, and you would take the match, you would take your hand and you would put it on the table. So let's say there's five of us in the game. That means there's a possibility of zero matches if, if nobody had a match in their hand or three apiece, which would be 15. So the number was somewhere between zero and 15, and the first guy would guess. He would probably say seven or eight, playing the odds. And it would go around. And then immediately everybody would say, that's the number. It was, it was, that's the number. He would say the same thing every time. And it would go around, and then everybody would reveal, I've got three matches. And it would be added up. And let's say the total number was nine. And whoever had that was eliminated. And you would then go around, and there would be another round. And you would put them. Now there was a possibility of 12, right? Finally, you would get down to two guys. Then you would play, the last two guys would play two out of three. And then the loser would have to pay everybody. That's why I say it was the only game I've ever met where, the, where you, one guy lost and everybody would... It didn't make any difference whether you went out first or last. As long as you were out, it was usually a dollar in those days, probably five or ten today. That was the match game, and it would be played interminably. Inter inter people would just play the match game. It was so stupid. And, and, and you would, it would always be a trilogy. You couldn't just play one game. It was a trilogy. So, and, then, and then there might be another trilogy, and another trilogy, depending on how drunk people were. But that was the match game. I'm glad you asked. Uh, yes, ma'am. Have you ever met Tiger Woods? Have, I've never met Tiger Woods. Would you talk about your greatest golf game? Ah, uh, the, greatest, the greatest golf. Um, Probably the greatest golf, and, and as I told you earlier, I know nothing about golf. I don't play it. Um, was a match between, well, it wasn't a match, it was a tournament. The British Open of about 1970, somewhere in there, but where Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas led the field by 12 strokes. They just blew everybody else away. There'd never been anything like it that two guys were that far ahead of everybody else. It was at Turnberry in Scotland. And 10 years later, uh, they were gonna, the, the British Open was going to return to Turnberry. And so the editor of the magazine asked me to do a story to go back and write about this fabulous match. And the reason he picked me was that I was not a golfer, that, that I wouldn't get bound down into whether he used the six iron or, or all that nonsense. So it was basically a question of talking to Watson and talking to Nicholas. I found Watson's caddy. He walked me all around the course, so I had all that down. And then it was just Watson and Nicholas. And here's what was so fascinating and what made the story so intriguing. Watson, who I had never met before, was delighted to talk to me. And in talking to Tom, he smoked which athletes did in those days. 
he just sat and smoked, smoked. I can see him smoking those Winstons. And he, he knew every stroke and every word that had passed between them. He remembered everything. And he remembered he won. He won on the last hole. They both buried the last hole. He remembered the piper when he went afterwards, playing Scotland the Brave that night while he and his wife were drinking champagne up in their room. Everything, the most vivid thing in the world. Nicholas, who I knew, avoided me like the plague. Wouldn't talk to me. Oh, Frank, that was 10 years ago. We don't want to talk about that. And I called him again. Please, Jack, just give me a little time. Finally, he's a polite guy. He said, well, come on down to Doral. I remember that. I'm playing in Doral. And even then, he really wouldn't talk to me. He only said, well, come on out to the practice putting green with me so that he really didn't have to look me in the eye. And he said he couldn't remember anything really important. I couldn't walk you around that course. I couldn't take you around that course. So the point of it, and the point of the story is, I didn't realize until then how much it really matters to these guys. Nicholas had put this, he couldn't stand losing. 10 years later, he couldn't take it. And Watson still celebrated it. And, and it's just, you know, we like to think that, that in defeat they, they throw it off their back. And in, in victory, you know, it's great, but it's just another. No. That told me, after all those years that I'd been writing, how much, how much it really mattered. It was, it was, it was really quite an, an amazing experience. Okay, we got one more. And yes, sir, right in the middle. Awkward moment? Yeah. Awkward <laughs> <interview>. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, I wish I could think of a real uh, beauty. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't think of anything that's really out, outstanding. I mean, there have been times when I... I thought I asked a stupid question, times when I did ask the stupid question, but there was never any time when anybody, you know, stalked out of the room or, or cursed me. Uh, I had a lot of embarrassing moments, but I'll tell you one time, which isn't quite the answer, but um, I, I, thought it was, it, I thought it was awkward and it turned out to be otherwise. Um, I was doing a story on Billy Martin when he was the manager of the uh, uh, Texas Rangers. One of his, first, maybe it was his first managerial job. And we were in Dallas, and um, I said to him, I said, uh, you think I could talk to Mantle about you? Because Mantle lived in Dallas. And he said, sure. And he picked up the telephone and he called. He said, Mickey, I want you to, Talk to, to Ford here. He's writing a story on me. And hands the phone to Mantle. And Mantle says hello. Never met Mantle. And uh, he says, uh, well, come on over tomorrow morning. And I said, great. What time? He says, well, I'm playing golf. He said, uh, how about 7.30? Well, I never interviewed anybody at 7.30 in the morning. So that kind of threw me off. But OK. And this is before GPS. So he gives me the house number and sort of the directions. I'm trying to get him on the phone. And I arrive the next morning at what I think is his house at 7.30 in the morning. It's dark. I, you know, I knock on the door, ring the doorbell. I think I've got the wrong house. Or, or worse than that, you know, Mickey had been known to take a drink. He's going to be hungover and he's going to be furious. And sure enough. In a couple of minutes, here he comes down the stairs in his wrapper. You know, he says, hey, you want a cup of coffee? I said, sure. So we go into the kitchen, and, um, and, and, and I ask him about Martin. And, and he tells me about Martin. We have, we're chatting there. We're still drinking coffee. So we just sort of start 
talking. And, and I thought, well, I got I got Mickey Mantle here. I might as well, you know, ask him a few questions. If, you know, just sort of slip him in. <laughs> and um, and I said, because it was the morning, and he was telling me how much he loved baseball and how much he missed it. And I said, do you ever dream about it? And as soon as I said that, I said, oh, God, that's a stupid question. God, imagine asking somebody about a dream. I had, I had been a Miss America judge a few times. <laughs> and, and I always hated these judges who would ask what I called, uh, you know, uh, Island questions, desert island questions. If you could be on a desert island, who would you want to be with? So I said, I have gone and asked a desert island question. And instead, Mail says, sure. And I said, you do? He said, yeah. He said, it's the same dream every time. And this is amazing. I said, what is it? He said, I'm at the Astrodome. And he said, the pitch comes in, and I hit it, and it's a home run. And I can see myself running around. And this is Mabel at 7.30 in the morning, sitting there in his, in his pajamas. And I'm running around the bases, and everybody is cheering. And it was, it was eerie. He did it in much more detail than I'm doing it right now, and he did it in that you know, country accent of his. I'm blown away by this. And then the journalist got to me, and I said, this is before interleague play. I said, but you never played in the Astrodome. And, and, and he looks at me and he said, the day the Astrodome opened, they brought the Yankees in for an exhibition game. And I hit the first home run in the Astrodome. And that's what I dream about all the time. And I said, thank you, thank you very much, Mr. <laughs> Thank you very much.